You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live for another program in our Race in America series. I'm Marilis Hernandez, a national reporter here at The Post. Devery Jacobs caught our attention as a leader of the Reservation Dogs on the award-winning series. The actor, writer, and director joins me now to talk about the lasting impact of the groundbreaking show, her new series, Echo, and the continued strides for Native representation in Hollywood. Devery, welcome to Washington Post Live. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> awesome. Let's get started, and we're going to talk about Reservation Dogs. You described <laughs> wrapping up the series as going out guns blazing. How do you think the uh, season three storylines did that? I think through each of the seasons, I, I think all of us were really surprised that we were even able to bring this story to life. I think that um, through filming Reservation Dogs from the pilot up until this point of finishing with, with season three, yeah, it really felt like, how are they letting us tell this story? It, it feels like it's really for our communities, and, and I attribute that to our showrunner, Sterling Harjo. But I think that by ending on season three, even though it's a bit bittersweet and it's maybe sooner than people had hoped that the, that the show would finish, that we're just as strong, if not stronger, than our very first episode. And not, not all TV series can say that. A note to our viewers that there might be a few spoilers because I happen to be a fan of the show myself. So, Deborah, <laughs> I'm going to ask you about, uh, is there a specific episode that stands out to you uh, as one sort of crystallizing the experience of the last three seasons? I think the one episode that really sticks out to me, which was, I think a milestone for so many of us, myself included as a as a writer on the show, was the episode Mabel in season two, episode four. Uh, throughout all of the show, Laura Dannon, who's the character I play, really deals with grief and, and unpacks it in a really, I guess, traumatic way. She was somebody who grew up without a mother because her mother had died by um, by drinking and driving, and she ended up being the one who found her best friend, Daniel, who died by suicide, which is an issue that affects so many Indigenous communities and, and essentially everyone and all families within Indian country. Um, so Alora Dannon was somebody who had only experienced death in a really negative way, but in season two, episode four titled Mabel, uh, that was the first time that Alora had a chance to see Kind of death in the right way like what it looks like when somebody passes who's surrounded by community and and her grandma mabel ends up passing from from illness and old age but there's also such a sense of beauty in that episode and and a glimpse into how native folks in north america not only mourn but also celebrate the lives of of the people who are around us who are passing and and i, I don't know i've always said like funerals on my res are kind of like the best parties uh because you'll be there all hours of the night and and everybody's eating and coming together and crying, but also celebrating and, and recognizing the lives of, of the person who's passing at that time. So that one was especially personal and special and um, marked the first episode of television that I, that I got to write. Well, you said uh, Reservation Dogs was pegged as the native show instead of a singular representation of Muskogee's Seminole community in rural Oklahoma. Talk to me about the expectation to represent for Indigenous people as a whole. I think it's an, an impossible task. I mean, that's one of the hard things about being one of the first is that you think that, like, 
it's wild to think you wouldn't go to America and say, okay, what is one show or one movie that encompasses all of white culture in, in North America? Like you just couldn't do it. We have so many different storytellers and so many different genres and voices of artists. And so for us to be carrying the, the burden of representation of native people period just is an impossible task. Um, I think for us, making sure that we humanize the story and humanize the experiences of the characters and really being specific about this group of kids in rural Oklahoma made it more three-dimensional. And I do think it ended up making it universal for people of, of getting a glimpse into this Muscogee Creek community and Seminole community. Um, but yeah, like there, there might be connective tissues between a lot of, a lot of Native folks across North America, but by no means is this a, a representation of the Native experience that doesn't exist. Understood, understood. Um, you mentioned, on, in addition to Mabel, that you actually directed one of the episodes in the final season. And we have a clip where your character, Alora, is speaking with her friend, Bear's mom, Rita. There's also someone else whose spirit is felt. Let's take a look. Yeah, I understand. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do next, too. Yeah? College. I'm, I'm applying. Your mom would be very proud. That was nice to see more things like that. You know, if you need anything, we're always here. Your aunties, me, Bev, Natalie. Your mom was always there for us. I appreciate that. You know, sometimes I feel like she's still around. I didn't know her at all, but yeah, sometimes it feels like warm, you know? I know what you mean. Well, first of all, congrats on your super touching episode and just one of the many ways in which Alora, again, is dealing with grief in, in all these sort of different ways. I, did, I wonder, did you get to choose which episode you directed? And if so, why this one? I didn't actually get to choose. This okay. one was assigned to me by Sterling, but I am so glad that this was the one and I likely would have chosen it had I had the option. Um, I think getting to really focus on Rita, who is someone we followed through the series of Reservation Dogs, but also to see her and the generation above the Res Dogs, like Bear's mom, how they've experienced their own kind of loss, the way that the Res Dogs did with Daniel, except in their instance, it was with Cookie. I think getting to send Cookie on her journey and send Rita on her path. And um, this was, we filmed this actually before we knew it would be the final season, uh, just before we knew. And uh, Sarah Podemski, who plays Rita beautifully, had asked me, she was like, am I being written out? <laughs> it turns out we all were, uh, because the show was ending. But getting to direct that episode felt really special, given that I've had a chance to be in Allura Dan and Skin for so long. It just felt so cathartic. And uh, Janae Collins, who played Cookie so beautifully, is such a wonderful actor and person. And yeah, it was, it was definitely an emotional episode. And I think getting to see some of that, even though this is a comedy, even though we, we like to laugh things off, there, there are some really heartfelt moments in there and, and some real stuff from inspired by each of our own communities in the writer's rooms. Um, so yeah, getting to, to direct that episode was really, really special. 
Did you bring anything specific from your experience or background into that episode? Into that episode specifically, we I think we all did when it came to the writer's room. There's there's like little bits and pieces of all of us. One area that I did um, bring some of my own family's experience was in the episode Laura's dad, episode nine of the third season uh, that I penned. And um, yeah, in that one, I'm I'm Mohawk, I'm indigenous, but my mom, who is also Mohawk, grew up with a, with a white dad who she didn't meet until she was older. And so there was definitely a lot of, um, a lot of that infused into the episode and Laura's dad ended up being played by Ethan Hawke because if you're going to get a white guy to, to play a dad, why wouldn't it be Ethan? <laughs> <laughs> well, after three groundbreaking season, Reservoir Dogs, of course, ended last September and we're on the brink of awards season and there's chatter about the show being snubbed uh, for a Golden Globe. I want to get your thoughts on that and the void that's left now that the show is over. Oh. I, it does feel like a void. It really feels like there is such an appetite for Native stories, especially in the television scene. And I think that by having a comedy, especially one that, while it deals with deeper subject matter, that there's levity and fun and joy and celebration, I think is so important. And I guess it's my hope with the season and the series of Res Dogs ending that we get to see a whole generation of new filmmakers come up and and to see so many more voices and stories because we we haven't had the opportunity up until this point. As far as getting subs, I'll, I'll, I'll let other people say that. I think the fact that we got to tell the story, to give it to our communities, um, it's a show that I so greatly would have benefited from growing up. And, um, and the fact that we got to leave that legacy is the part that means the most. And there are so many shows out there, some of my favorite projects that weren't necessarily recognized during their during their run, but I'm I'm really grateful for all of the audience and fans and and also the critics who have shouted it out since since day one. Well, I'm curious, what kind of feedback now that you know you're looking at the at the end of this uh, from from your communities? What have you heard from people about uh, you know your show, your role and and what it meant for you know various communities across North America? I mean, I think the best part that I've seen has been all of the Halloween costumes, all of like the native kids dressing up like Willie Jack or everybody dressing up and recreating the photo of the homage to Reservoir Dogs of being in the suits with the ties and all lined up in a row. Uh, that's been really cool. I think Halloween is especially a touchy time for native folks because people will appropriate regalia, people will make a mockery of, of native people when we actually didn't have access or like it was illegal for us to practice our own ceremonies and cultures for many decades up until the 70s. So Halloween can be a bit of a, a tough time for native folks in, in Indian country, seeing so many people make a mockery of our cultures. And so now to kind of reclaim that and take it back and to have native kids really celebrating not only historic versions of native folks, but modern day native characters is, is something that's really special. And yeah, I think there's been a lot of outpouring of love from, from my res, from my community, but also Indian country as a whole uh, for the show. And a lot of mourning its loss. I think people were wanting to see more. And, um, and yeah, I, I think it just leaves a space for other filmmakers to be able to come in and, and share their stories. 
Well, speaking of award season, uh, one film that's been getting a lot of buzz is Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which stars Lily Gladstone, who's also in a couple episodes of Reservation Dogs. Uh, you sent some very strong, strongly worded tweets calling the film uh, painful, grueling, unrelenting, and unnecess unnecessarily graphic. You go on to say, I'm quoting, our pride for being Native, our languages, cultures, joy, and love are way more interesting and humanizing than showing the horrors that white men inflicted on us. Uh, I was wondering if you could unpack this for me, and how would you have preferred that the story be told? I mean, I want to shout out all of the Osage folks who worked on that project and the Osage Nation who has quite literally made it more human. And so many of the positive parts of that film are because of the Osage Nation. Um, I think a lot of the things that I said on the posts were things that I stand by and things that I believe. I grew up in a, in a very outspoken Mohawk community, and that's... Um, yeah, Mohawk people are known for being fiery and, and opinionated, even though sometimes I feel like I might be a little more mild-mannered than that. Um, but yeah, I think that there were some really incredible performances in there. I think there's also, should always be room for critique on how we can better represent our communities and how we can involve Indigenous people in front of the camera, behind the camera at all levels, um, especially when it comes to stories about ourselves and our communities. Well, Reservation Dogs also had a pretty painful and violent episode in season three that explored the experiences uh, at an abusive Native American boarding school. The show's co-creators, as you know, Sterling Harjo, who also wrote the episode, called it cathartic. Did you feel similarly? I mean, I think that there needs to be room for all of these stories. I am from the north side of this colonial imposed border in Canada, but on the, and in Canada, there has been a recognition of the history of here, we call them residential schools on the US side. Uh, they're called Indian boarding schools. There's a, a very extensive history of really dark and deep systemic racism and outright genocide. And so for there to be a lack of recognition of that in the US, I think is really heart-wrenching and, and is something that absolutely needs to be addressed. I think of shows like Watchmen that essentially discuss the, the Tulsa race massacre that happened. And after that moment, it, it was then taught in schools in, in Oklahoma and it hadn't been before that point. So I think that by being able to explore these histories from these communities and, and especially to be involved and, and telling them from our own perspectives is is so huge. Um, and I think it while it was a very brutal episode, I can imagine that getting that story out there is is needed, especially for our indigenous relatives in in the US. I can tell you, I mean, I recognized your lady as soon as I saw her, but when uh, Barrett goes under the table and <laughs> to pick up, I think it was the book or whatever, that was sort of, it was a moment for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> another area where your presence is making an impact is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Talk to me about the upcoming series, Echo, and your character, Bonnie. I'm so excited to be a part of the MCO. It's something that I've been wanting to be part of, like, forever. I mean, come on, it's Marvel. And, uh, <laughs> and so on January 9th, all of the episodes will be dropping uh, for the new Marvel series, which stars Alakwa Cox. Not only is it uh, following a protagonist who's deaf and indigenous, but it also happens to be like a really 
I don't know if I say kick butt. I'll say I'll I'll, I'll tone it down a little bit. Not sure what we can say, but like a kick butt <laughs> project that is a dark crime noir family drama, um, and happens to follow somebody who's from that community. And and the character that I play, Bonnie, is somebody who is incredibly close with Maya Lopez. She essentially grew up so close to her, like a sister. She's a, a coda, a child of deaf adults. So I had to learn ASL for the project. Um, it's something I'm still continuing doing even after the fact. And yeah, we, we filmed that last summer in, in Atlanta. And I think it's the first TVMA project for Marvel. It's going to be darker. It's going to be grittier. And uh, there's a lot of Choctaw culture and, and language infused throughout the throughout the season. I think audiences will be really excited. Well, can't wait for that one. But you also voice the first Mohawk superhero, Kahori. Did I say that right? Kahori? Okay. Ahoy. In the Marvel anime. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and that's for What If, the animated series. And although many Marvel fans have wondered if there's a connection between Bonnie and Kahori, uh, you've emphasized the importance of language to both characters. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I had the chance to play Gohorty, which um, looking back, I don't know how it could have played out better. I did not realize it would be coming out at the same time. I hadn't been cast in Echo uh, when we started recording, but Gohorty in episode, um, I believe it's six of What If, is the, it's entirely in Gonyetgeha. There, it's the Mohawk language. We get to see Essentially, what if indigenous people got superpowers during the time of colonization? And it takes place in a Mohawk community, which is my nation. I had the opportunity to dive into Ganyakaha, my language, and uh, and to really showcase that. And in terms of language, when it comes to and when it comes to Echo, all of us were all of the cast members were learning ASL or, or different forms of sign language. There's even um, specific family dialects in there, regional dialects of, of signing, as well as um, Plains Indian Sign Language, thanks to our ASL master, Douglas Ridloff. So there, there was definitely a lot of homework and work involved in, in making sure that for both projects, both What If and for Echo, that we got language and, and culture right, because we are servicing an, an underrepresented community in, in both of these projects. Um, but it was, they're both very near and dear to my heart. And I think that, um, yeah, they just, they just scratched the surface on, on native stories, especially like really cool ones with superpowers. <laughs> well, that's perfect segue into talking a little bit about your story. Uh, you grew up in the aftermath of the Oka crisis, which is a land dispute. Uh, did a little bit of research between the Ganawage, did I say that right? Reserve? That's right. Okay. And the Canadian it. government. Awesome. Well, how did that event affect your upbringing? I grew up in the wake of the Oka crisis, and that was, I think, a, a really big turning point for the Mohawk Nation, where we had come against many things of having our, our land taken away, but not only on our, like, obviously North America and our territory, but our reservation as a, as a whole, where bit by bit it was chipped away. And, and then finally our sister community, Ganesadage was, um, they were disputing over a piece of land that had a sacred burial site and they wanted to build a golf course on it. So my community protested in solidarity. And so that standoff was a really huge marker of, 
of Mohawk resistance and also of putting our foot down and saying, no, these are our rights and enough is enough. And it was, it ended up being a really huge resurgence in pride for being Konyakeha. And I think um, it, it was really foundational in my upbringing of, of knowing who I am and where I come from and, and really shaping the political voice and, and heat that, that I was surrounded by in my, in my community growing up. I read somewhere that it was important for you to be credited as a writer by your full name. Could you say your name for us, your full name, uh, and and why why it's so important for you to to be credited that way? Yeah, I think as an actor, I am somebody who is very much willing to take on other people's stories and help them tell stories from from their communities or their backgrounds. And so I go by Devery Jacobs, which is my name, but Devery is actually my middle name. And so as a writer, as a producer, as a director, especially when I'm telling stories from, from my culture, from my identities as being a Ganyakahaga Mohawk person and as a queer person, um, that's when I like to use my full name, which is Gawanahere Devery Jacobs. And my first name Gawanahere was given to me by my dada, by my grandmother, um, and it essentially, it directly translates to her word is above or loosely translates to what I have to say is important. And so that's something that I'm, I'm trying to live up to in my life and also in my, in my storytelling. Oh, that's powerful. <laughs> Your grandmother certainly knew what she was doing when she gave you that name. <laughs> um, before getting into acting, though, you were studying to become a counselor and working at the uh, Native Women's Shelter of Montreal. Have you kept your mental health in check while also advocating for Indigenous rights? How do you do the self-care for yourself? I mean, that's the effort. That's always the goal. I think that um, I, along with so many people in this industry, can be a workaholic. And so I think finding that sense of balance is hugely important. Um, but yeah, I, if I, I always knew that I wanted to act and to write and direct and be a part of this film industry. Um, but what I didn't realize was that it would actually be a possibility. And I thought if I can't pursue my first love of, of film and TV, then I wanna be able to help uh, indigenous people. So that's why I ended up going that route. But as soon as I got a taste of uh, my first leading role in a feature film called Rhymes for Young Ghouls, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't do anything else and instead have, and, and I'm trying to find a way to incorporate my passion for indigenous rights activism into my work uh, as a as a storyteller in this medium. Well, you also identify as queer, as you said earlier. So the queerness is in indigenous culture is not only natural but also sacred. Can you explain that a little bit? I mean, it really depends on which community you come from. I think there's certain cultures that have really done a great job at preserving their version of traditional queerness, not only in North America but beyond. Um, I think of of different communities like the Diné Nation or the uh, Anishinaabe communities. I am Mohawk, and so I think because we have had such a, a Catholic influence, there's some traditional knowledge there that's been lost to to that kind of colonized view of sexuality and gender identity. And so that's something that a lot of folks are really working hard to reclaim and and. It's something that I'm also really trying to make sure that I'm decolonizing through um, making sure that I am being true to myself and and what that what that queerness means for me. But um, but yeah, growing up and and coming into my queerness at, at, as an adult, 
I I've had some time to be able to be able to unpack that and I'm still coming into myself. Well, you told CBC Arts that uh, your performance in the queer cheerleading movie Backstop, which was produced by Elliot Page, was some of the uh, work you're most proud of as an actor. Why is that? It's a back spot, just so you know. It's a position in cheerleading who is like the foundation. Oh, sorry. The... Okay. No, you're all good. Uh, but a back spot is like the foundation to the whole period. They're like the person who catches the girls. They're the ones who, who is keeping count. And so I had a chance as a producer to develop and, and work on the film for over five years now. I think it's actually going on six. Um, to bring Backspot to life. And we were able to premiere it at the Toronto International Film Festival this this fall. We're going to have a spring theatrical release. I had a chance to work opposite Evan Rachel Wood, and I was directed by the incredible D.W. Watterson. It is some work that I think that I, I that, that rings true, I am most proud of it. I had a chance to really dive into this character and sit with Riley for for such a long time. And I was a former provincial champion in competitive gymnastics and being able to apply that into cheerleading was something that was really important and, and fun for me. I think having native stories is incredible about our history, about our trauma, but also being able to just happen to be a native person. When we were looking for funding for Backspot, there was actually uh, a moment where we were passed off on and we asked for feedback, like, why why weren't we actually awarded this, even though we were so close? And we were told it was because, well, we didn't understand why the protagonist was Indigenous. It, it didn't say in the script. And it really confused me because I thought, well, it's because I'm a producer and I'm Native and I used to be a gymnast. Like, I didn't go to competitions and people be like, but why are you Native, though? I'm queer and this was a story that I wanted to tell as a producer and as an actor. And so getting to dive into this fun and interesting and super queer world um, was a marker for me as an actor who happened to be Native, just like the character. Well, given all that, uh, you know, you've you've written now extensively for TV and spoken a great deal about your, your personal appetite for Native stories. Uh, if you could write your own show, what would it be about? I actually... Um, I think it'll be announced soon. So I don't know if I can drop what it is exactly, but there is a specific lab that I will be taking part in uh, from a prestigious film festival. And that's the, um, I can't, I can't exactly say what it is, but uh, that's a feature film that I'm going to be working on as a writer director. And it's, it's a story I've been working on for probably about six or seven years now that's that's really resonated with me but I'll, I'll be sharing more about that at a later time when I'm ready to to really dive into the story. But it's definitely a story that you've wanted to tell for a while. Oh yeah it's one from my community it's one that discusses Mohawk identity uh, one that has histories within the U.S. as well as in Canada uh, and and marks a really kind of iconic and important moment in history. Um, but yeah, that's all. That's all I'll tease for now. Okay. All right. We'll 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 leave it there then. Well, so we're getting close to our time ending here, and as we close, uh, I read an interview where you talked about having dinner with fellow actor Amber Midthunder, who I also happened to have interviewed on Post Live about her role in Prey. Oh, amazing! Uh, and 
and and you all discussed how scarce roles are for native actors. Uh, you said, I think, you said, you think if I'm not cats, it's going to be another person and there's only room for one. And that's just not true right now. How are you and other native artists leaving Hollywood better than when you entered it? I think that, I don't know what the expression is and I probably won't do it justice, but the the tide rises all all ships, something along those lines. And I think that's so true for indigenous storytellers and communities. We are better serving each other together as opposed to competing with one another. We have so many stories that it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think for a long time in media, that was the case. There were only so few roles slotted for native actors or, or native stories and, and so even fewer native artists granted into those slots. So there was definitely a history of that competition and that scarcity mentality. And I think we need to band together if there's going to be any chance of us carving out a space for ourselves on this main stage. And and that was something that Amber and I had had really agreed on. I We may go out for similar roles, but we made a pact with each other that we both want to be elders in this industry and to look around and see what we helped shape together as opposed to to competing against one another. And And I really hope that I get to work opposite her because usually it's the one native character around that age when when actually like we're kicking it in real life. So I I would love to be able to work opposite her one one of these days. Well, let's let's make sure that then some directors in Hollywood uh, hear hear this and are able I know. To refer back to it. Right, we're declaring it here on Post Live. Uh, you heard it also, here, unfortunately. <laughs> right here <laughs> fortunately we're out of time so we'll have to leave it there Jeffrey Jacobs thank you so much for joining me today it's been such a pleasure having you and thank you for Reservation Dogs and, and that upcoming project that we hope to hear about real soon yes no thank you so much for having me thanks for listening for more information on our upcoming programs go to WashingtonPostLive.com <laughs>